0: The National Archives podcast series, a history of the Public Records Office, presented by Vanessa Carr. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is a brief history of Public Records and the Public Record Office. whistle-stop tour through the years 1086 to 2003. 1066 and all that, perhaps not terribly original, but uh, it's more or less a good starting point. Um, Originally, the public records were the records of the monarch's administrative servants. The monarch himself was peripatetic, so travelled around the country with more or less no fixed abode. And the documents were carried around with him, along with things like gold jewels and personal belongings, um, just as part of um, his personal baggage. They were kept and transported in chests... And the storing of documents in chests, um, in fact, was a standard form of storage for many centuries. And a number of these can um, be seen displayed around the National Archives. There were other containers for smaller documents. And um, boxes called skipets were produced specifically to protect seals. Um, The Doomsday Book, uh, not only the most famous, but the oldest public record. Um, That was completed in 1086. Uh, It's in two parts. There's Great Doomsday, which covers uh, much of um, England, and Little Doomsday, which covers Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex. But the Doomsday book is not the oldest document in the National Archives. That's actually an Anglo-Saxon land deed dated 974 it's in fact a private record and the national archives has many many private records Uh, they are brought into the courts of law as evidence um, and it may seem amazing to us but never taken away again Um, or they are like this particular um, land deed um, records that have come by way of a gift or deposit Uh, there are other non-governmental records, though of um, very public sort of bodies, uh, that have come to the National Archives, um, simply because the collections are too large to be housed anywhere else, and a very good example of that is the um, records of the uh, private railway companies prior to the 1948 nationalisation. This is both, if you like, a document and a finding aid, um, chest with a coat of arms on. It's in fact a chest um, that was produced to house the Treaty of Calais, signed between England and France in 1360, um, and has the coats of arms of the um, signatories on it. So, if, if you like, it's a sort of storage and a catalogue entry, um, all in one. Well, to look at the beginnings of real record-making and storage, um, long before there was a public record office, As uh, government developed and gained in complexity, it became much more centralised and countrywide. Um, And record making administration was really divided into three main areas. There was the exchequer that dealt with finance, as you'd expect, chancery, which dealt with general administration, and then there were the courts of common law. Documents that were directed to individuals and institutions, as well as those pertaining to courts of law, came gradually to be copied for the record before being sent out, so there was there was something kept so that, uh, so that it was known what administration had been carried out. Um, these were parchment then, and for convenience, they were enrolled. Parchment comes in membranes about uh, two feet long <laughs> six eight inches wide um, there 's a very good reason for that that 's more or less sheepskin shaped, which is what they were. They were either sewn together at the, at the head and then rolled up, and that was known as enrolment exchequer-wise and was also used by the courts of law, or the membranes were sewn end-to-end and then rolled up, which was enrolment chancery-wise. Uh, the records that were sent into government also gradually came to be subject to a proper organisation and recording. There were records in other formats besides rolls, in particular, files of small parchment documents, usually literally spiked together. And a good example of that is writs, which have very little writing, very small documents on a sort of strip of parchment. There was right from the start a problem of where to keep these. In fact, in a way, this whole history is just one of sort of storage problems, if you like. The king could clearly soon not carry all this around with him and anyway was becoming much more um, centralised and less peripatetic. Many royal palaces and public buildings were used for the storage of records, of which the Tower of London and Westminster Abbey were among the principal. Within the Tower of London, record storage was widespread, Whilst at Westminster Abbey, it was mainly the chapter house that came to to be used. Now, one store for records was a house in Chancery Lane, which had originally been built to house Jews who converted to Christianity, and you sometimes hear it called by its Latin name as the Domus Conversorum. In 1290, in a wave of anti-Semitism, all Jews were expelled from England, and the house, and more particularly its chapel, became redundant it was extremely convenient for the storage of records of Chancery, obviously, it was in Chancery Lane, so very much the of Chancery administration. And soon the official uh, who was in charge of the records of Chancery, the master of the Rolls, actually came to live on that site himself, and it became known from then on as the Rolls Estate. Uh, the chapel within it was known as the Rolls Chapel, and in particular it was the chapel that was used for the storage of records. It was reinstated for religious purposes as well, but was always served the dual purpose. It's noted in a much um, a, a, a programme of repair for the chapel, much later than the date of which we're really talking, um, in the 1770s. Um, that included a provision for presses fitted out for record storage, and also the seats themselves were made with cupboards underneath to make it more practical to store records. This is just some um, samples of old rolls. They're, they're very early patent rolls. Patent rolls are part of chancery, and you can see they're that sort of that sort of enrolment. At the bottom, the Johannes—that's part of Johannes Rex. So they're actually from the reign of King John. So they're among the very, very earliest of the patent rolls. This is St. John's Chapel in the Tower of London and you can see how it's completely utilised for the storage of records and they're well stored, they're rather piled on top of each other um, but that's not really a very bad form of, of storage there. This is a cross-section of the chapter house at Westminster Abbey. Now all the time um, it was a monastic um, establishment, um, obviously the chapter house was in use but after the disillusion of the monasteries fell out of use and it was really very much used as the principal record storage in that area after the restoration of the monarchy with, with Charles II and you, you can see from that various bits of it are quite neatly um, Stacked out there for record storage. That's a close-up of one of the rooms full of cupboards for record storage. Again, you can see they're very well kept. There's a nice finding aid there on the desk. The cupboards are all numbered, which is always useful for finding things. And the records are very neatly stored. This is going back to the chapter house as a whole, looking um, rather sad. If you look at the bottom, the date is 1859, which we will come to see. It's just after the setting up of the public record office. So this is when it has been emptied. Um, The floor is looking a bit battered, so the shelves are looking a bit battered. Um, After this, it was restored by uh, George Gilbert Scott, to presumably somewhat of its former glory. Uh, this is a very early drawing um, of the Rolls Chapel, which um, I always think is rather a rather a sweet little illustration. It was actually done by the chronicler uh, Matthew uh, Paris in the 13th century. And Paris is one of the earliest recorded searchers of the records. Right, moving on. I said it was a whistle-stop tour, a medieval period to the 19th century in one go. Well, in the way I've just described, the record storage really continued for many centuries. In time, the three main medieval departments gave way to an administration which was dominated by the state paper office, which had uh, divisions into domestic um, and foreign. At the end of the 18th century, from that, you can see the beginnings of modern system of departmental government when the state paper office was divided into a home office and foreign office. That was in 1782, which was a year of uh, huge administrative reform. The records, of course, kept growing in ever-increasing numbers and types. More storage places, large and small, were added to the ones uh, of which we've already spoken. Just to digress a bit, a very interesting development of the late 13th century was the practice of using what are known as pictograms, which were as finding aids to records. They use a pictorial classification to denote a subject which was relevant. So, for example, the records of Gascony, which was then an area under uh, France under English rule, um, were represented by grape treading for winemaking. What I've never been able to find out is okay. So you know their records of Gascony, but how do you, how do you pick one record from another? And I've never seen anything that explains that either. The larger repositories, on the whole, were much better organised and managed than the small ones. And there were custodians in the early period who were dedicated men who took their responsibilities very seriously, uh, with proper organisation and storage and listing and indexing of records and proper facilities for catering for those who wish to research the records. The researchers were largely historians, antiquarians, and those doing searches for legal purposes. Many, though, fell lamentably short of any kind of a decent standard. Despite the record storage in the larger repositories being reasonably good, generally, um, I have a quotation from William Prynne, who became keeper of the records in the Tower at the restoration of Charles II in 1660. And he reported that the records were in a deplorable pickle, overspread with dust cobwebs and eaten up with rust cankers, moths, worms, and their overmuch neglected cells. And again, he went on to complain, I have almost been choked with the dust of neglected records in the White Tower, their rust eating out the tops of my gloves with their touch, and their dust rendering me twice a day as black as a chimney sweeper. I have at last tumbled them all over, and distributed them into sundry, indigested heaps, which I intend, God willing, to reduce into order by degrees. Uh, Later, the first state paper office became so dilapidated it had to be demolished. That was in 1759. At that time, it had the custody of the Privy Council records and they had to get a sledgehammer to bash down the doors of the room they were kept in because nobody had any idea where the key was. A constant gripe throughout the long number of centuries was the fees that were charged for a whole range of services. And it's interesting to note that fees weren't entirely given up until 1962. They were still charged up to then for legal searches, various aspects of. And some custodians got a really good living out of, out of this. In eighteen thirty the antiquarian Sir Nicholas Harris Nicholas complained that to consult a record at the Tower of London you had to pay ten shillings or fifty pence to have the list searched and six and threepence I'm sorry, six and eightpence, or thirty three pence, to have the document produced, which comprised, and he quoted, one of the clerks rising from his chair, walking a few yards and opening a roll. And this is obviously a huge amount of money to charge for virtually no service at all. Um, However, there is one very significant researcher that expressed himself very happy with his record-searching experience. Samuel Pepys' diary entry for the 15th of March 1669 begins, Up and by water with W. Hewer to the temple and thence to the chapel of rolls, where I made inquiry for several rolls, and was soon informed in the manner of it, and so spent the whole morning with W. Hewer, he taking little notes in shorthand, while I hired a clerk there to read to me about twelve or more several rolls which I did call for. And it was great pleasure to me to see the method wherein the rolls are kept, that when the master of the office, one Mr. Case, doth call for them, he did most readily turn to them. There's actually quite a lot of references to Peeps doing document research because he wrote A History of the Navy. This is p- the pictogram for Gascony of the grape treading for winemaking process. I have to say, I always think it looks vaguely indecent. It looks a bit <laughs> like someone's in, someone's in their bath and someone else is playing the bagpipes to them. But <laughs> it's it, rather nice. And that's one of my particular favourites. That's a jousting Knight. That was the pictogram for Aragon, as you can see. Aragonia up up at the top. Was very splendid. The next is a good example of good record keeping. It's an inventory of what's in the basement at the Chapter House in the great chests, as it says. It's got they are a nice description, the dates, what sort of state they're in, what sort of arrangement that, that they have, and whether or not they are they're indexed. So, as I say, whilst a lot fell short of that standard, um, there were some there, there were some very good. Uh, methods of record keeping as well it's not quite like it. it's a design for a room in the state paper office and um, a possible um, designation of where on various shelves um, various sorts of records might, might be kept two um, very important officials to the state paper office you can see down on the left our left joseph williamson his papers leoline jenkins his papers um, they, 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 were, they were both principal secretaries of, of state. Uh, what I really like, there's a tiny fireplace, which seems all out of proportion. Um, and, of course, very, very often fireplaces were, uh, were in close proximity to where records were kept. Um, setting up public record office. Well, by 1800... Uh, it was widely recognised that um, there was a bit of a crisis um, in uh, record-keeping heritage. Uh, Parliament set up a select committee to look into the state of public records and this itself was the successor of several 18th century committees which had looked into the matter, one of which described records found to be a mass of putrid filth, stench, dirt and decomposition. Uh, there were over 200 different sites in, identified right across the country. Of course, it would be wrong to think they were all in London. Many keeping records in appalling conditions where they were simply rotting away. Probably the worst is um, that was found was a cellar which had been formerly used for storing fish. It, this accounts for presence in the National Archives of some records in an appalling state of decay, as well as things like bird skeletons and uh, mummified rats. There was, of course, the ever-present danger of destruction by fire. And I say it sometimes seems to me nothing short of a miracle that about 33 miles of medieval and early modern records, counting that up to about 1,800, um, have actually survived, including virtually complete series. Well, as a result of all of this... It was recommended in 1838, so you'll notice it didn't happen exactly quickly, because this is from 1800. A dedicated public record office should be set up under the Master of the Rolls, who we have already heard about. This was sealed by Act of Parliament, and in 1858, again, it didn't happen all that quickly, a purpose-built repository and reading room were begun, and the site that was chosen was the Rolls Estate in Chancery Lane. Many of the existing buildings of which were then demolished The architect was Sir James Pennythorne, who designed many 19th century uh, public buildings, including a number of the departments in Whitehall. It was a building of Victorian Gothic design, composed of stone and brick, with individual strong rooms which had um, iron and slate shelving. This meant there was as little combustible material as possible. The Strong Rooms are also equipped with open ironwork spiral staircases between the two floors, which most of them had. Uh, And those were very picturesque and space-saving, of course, but an absolute nightmare for the production of, well, really any documents, but in particular large documents, trying to get them up and down a narrow spiral staircase. The Foundation Stone calls the building the treasure house of the public records or archives. Well, by the 1860s, which wasn't very long at all after, an extension was necessary. An anonymous letter to the Times on the 11th of March 1862 complained of that dismal prison house like the solitary wing of a lunatic asylum to which the prudence of the government and the artistic grace of Mr Pennythorne have consigned the materials of our English history from the Norman conquest to this year of grace piled up the walls from basement coping thrust into every sort of nook and corner stored away and battened down in inconceivable galleries and hatchways bursting out of crevices making ghostly appearances at dim windows like an overcharged warehouse the present repository stands brimful and ready to spill over with the least addition uh, so, an extension was built. Um, that was between 1863 and 1868. Included in it were two reading rooms, um, one of which is the round room, which is probably the most famous bit of the old Chancery Lane building. It was probably modelled on that of the British Museum, and it remains to this day a very fine example of Victorian glass and iron architecture. And again, Pennythorne was the architect for this. This had filled up by 1895, so this is just one long history of sort of record storage problems. And yet another extension was built, and this time the architect was Sir John Taylor, uh, this then included the area um, in which was the master of the Rolls House and also the chapel, and they were demolished at this point. Nobody seems to have cared about the demolition of the master of the Rolls House, which wasn't considered a great, architect- great architectural interest, apparently. But there was a certain amount of public outcry at the demolition of the chapel. It was decided to keep one arch of it, and that can still be seen set into a ward of a present building and very sort of... Um, confused and sad it looks I have to say but what they decided to do was build a museum on the chapel site and in that to preserve all the tombs monuments and the stained glass which are actually all quite quite notable. Uh, now the most notable tomb there is of Dr John Young who was a master of the Rolls, who died in 1516 because it was sculpted by Pietro Torrigiano who was responsible for the effigy of Henry VII in Westminster Abbey. I have noted here one of his other claims to fame was that he once broke Michelangelo's nose in a tavern brawl, apparently. (coughs) At the end of the 19th century, the antiquarian Walter Rye expressed his satisfaction with the record office. It would be difficult to find a place where study and search can be carried on more easily and pleasantly. Certainly at no place are the officials from the highest to the lowest more courteous or more willing to help. The beginner, stumbling along, only half conscious as to what he's looking for, is as well treated and listened to as patiently as the habitué, with the single exception of lunatics who want information about unclaimed millions in chancery, who are sternly kept at bay by a standing notice in the lobby. All searches, however different for their objects, are made welcome. I find it disconcerting that there are all these references to lunatics and lunatic asylums, but I'm probably not entirely surprised. Shooting on up to 1958, the establishment of a purpose-built archive building allowed both sorting and accessioning and listing projects uh, to be carried on, um, and publications programmes to to flourish. As has been suggested already, uh, good practices and good work were far from previously unknown. Um, For example, between 1800 and 1831, there were six records commissions appointed, and we applied themselves assiduously to the publication of records texts, but it was just all much easier now and um, much more coordinated. Um, Sometimes the emphasis was on one strand and sometimes on the other. Now there always tended to be uh, resources given to publications programmes and there was sometimes criticism for this because people said, well this is absolutely wonderful, but what about the records that are sitting there waiting for identification and sorting and arranging um, and listing which aren't accessible at all? Uh, always, the office was a place of high-quality scholarly work and was recognised as an academic-style institution. The emphasis was almost consistently on uh, medieval and early modern records, right up until after the Second World War. Despite the fact that there had been con- there was a continuing interest in modern records um, and increasing interest right through the twentieth century. Um, access was a big bone of contention because there was no consistent policy and no official closure period right until 1958. Usually records were closed for 100 or 50 years or a permit might be needed to view modern records, however those were defined. This was very frustrating for those growing numbers which I've already mentioned who um, were more interested in the modern than the older records. Well, under a new regime... The government departments and law courts soon began to see the benefit of regularly transferring records to the new record office. However, on the one hand, there was no compulsion to do this and on the other, absolutely no selection whatsoever. This latter meant that an awful lot of material that wasn't really worthy of permanent preservation at all or huge amounts of duplication of material were sent and so in 1877 there was another Public Records Act, the only one passed which authorised the destruction of unwanted records. But they had to be dated later than 1715, though in 16, this was amended to 1660 in 1898 and it remains 1660 now. We can't destroy anything prior to 1660 should it come to light and be accessioned shooting on rather it's noteworthy that during the second world war the building survived almost unscathed which is amazing for the location it was in but half a million records were evacuated to premises which ranged from the illustrious surroundings of beaver castle to a disused prison at shepton mallet there was a precedent for doing this some records were moved in the first world war In particular to the Post Office Underground Railway, which um, I I don't know if you're aware, there's a whole second underground system going with the public one that is, or used to be, used to the Post Office. Well, of course, again, the records kept growing, both within the Record Office and in departments. And by 1950s, government administration was so complex and extensive that departments were absolutely crammed with records, um, which were kept because they were needed, or they might be needed for business or they needed a decision as to whether they should be sent to the public record office or not. And the Treasury got very iffy because these all very, very expensive premises in central London um, cost an awful lot of money. The result of that was that a new parliamentary committee was set up under the career civil servant Sir James Grigg, and you still hear references to the Grigg committee now. That report in 1958 um, and the recommendations Um, from it led to the Public Records Act of 1958. Records Acts, 1958 and 1967. Four major changes under the Public Public Records Act of 1958. Keeper of the Public Records was appointed under the the Lord Chancellor. Previously there'd been a Deputy Keeper under the Master of the Rolls. For the first time, there was a proper selection and destruction process established and with two record reviews. There's an administrative review carried out by the department, departmental records staff, who were really set up for the first time as well, in the department in question when the records are around about five years old, and then a review to consider the historical criteria also, when the records are about 25 years old, jointly by departmental staff and public record office inspecting officers, as they were called, whose successors are now the, the current IMP department, just, just around here. And this placed public record office staff with a responsibility for the first time for the pre-selection records management, as well as the more traditional archival roles. And today it's worth noting that somewhere between 2% and 5% of all records created are preserved for permanent preservation. And the selection and transfer of selected materials was given the force of law for the first time, so they didn't have any choice, they had to do it. Always some records of purely local interest are are preserved locally in places of deposit, things like coroner's records or um, the lower courts of law, hospital records, things like that. And actually, at at current time, about 20% of records um, are kept like this. Um, Records closed to inspection for 50 years. Some might be closed for longer on grounds of security, sensitivity of information or what have you, just like now. And if the information is already in the public domain, they will be open. Really, that's the only major change there's been since. That was reduced to 30 years in 1967. And the other thing that happened under the uh, 1958 Act was the Advisory Council on Public Records was set up again, which we still have, to consider access proposals that are at variance with the normal closure period and other major issues and proposals around the office management. Right, taking notes from 1958 to 76... Records continued to increase the rate of about a mile a year, the total now being somewhat over 100 miles. Um, other sites were used from time to time, especially Ashridge Park near Berkhamsted, uh, which was acquired after the Second World War for the storage of little used records. And In the 1950s, an ex ordnance factory at Hayes, just down the road, Hayes in Middlesex, was acquired for the use of departments to store their semi-current and non-current records. When... The first Kew building was built, we gave up the Asheridge site, and the management of Hayes was handed over to the Ministry of Defence, who was the principal user in 1996, Um, although the Public Record Office stored some records there, little used ones. All the public records were finally removed from Hayes in 2004, it's subsequently been decommissioned and it's redeveloped, I think as an industrial park or something. But outhousing the records to deal with storage problems was not entirely new. Both Cambridge and Canterbury prisons were used between the two world wars. It seems to be a bit of a propensity for using prisons. Well, yet again, late 1960s, um, a, a serious accommodation problem, both for records and this time for readers as well, which was something new to have far more readers than we could really cope with. There's several reasons for that. Research was popular as it had never been before, partly because of the full effects of a generation of compulsory and free secondary education, obviously meant a lot more people were going into further and higher education. The fashion for genealogy had started, but the whole thing was greatly exacerbated by what's known as the accelerated opening of wartime records. Um, by this arrangement, all government departments agreed to open all the records of the Second World War in 1972, instead of doing them, dribbling them, in yearly blobs um, because historians were desperate to find out the history, administrative history of the Second World War. In fact the Public Record Office had already out has Foreign Office and Ministry of Defence records as well as the census returns to the nearby Land Registry building in Lincoln's Inn Fields and the Conservation Department which is now Collection Care was was also there in fact they didn't leave until 1994 But all the standard archival activities and services continued, perhaps not always in expected ways. I have a quotation, hopefully tongue-in-cheek, which is a report on a chancery file sorting project begun in 1969, and that stated that, in the great chancery file sort of the early 1970s, one editorial assistant with big feet was used to get recalcitrant files into standard-sized boxes when he wasn't practising archery by using rubber bands to fire parchment needles onto the Law Society roof. This is a picture of the queues waiting for the place to open um, at some time, I don't know when, in the 1960s. Now if you remember back to that picture of the round room, I mean it was beautiful but not enormous. And, you know, compared with the amount of seating we provide now, uh, it's, it's obvious that you're not going to fit that many people in, and the other reading room was more or less the same sort of size. So th- there really was a, a reader accommodation problem. All of which, of course, led to the, um, the establishment of the office um, at Kew. Well the first building was Q1, opened in 1976. It was then the most modern archive in the world, totally different storage from Chancery Lane, open plan repositories which of course used the space available much more effectively than individual strong rooms. Um, It had the most modern equipment that was available anywhere for both conservation and reprographic. Um, activities, and a computerised document ordering system and mechanical handling of records, which were completely revolutionary. The records went up and down a sort of bucket on a chain system called Paternoster for some reason, up through the middle of the building and popped out on the floors as appropriate. However, Chancery Lane remained and the way it was organised was that medieval and early modern records stayed there while the modern records moved to Kew. However, all legal records were kept at Chancery Lane because that's where people obviously like to come to do legal searches. This arrangement caused some confusion because they decided not to split records of departments between the two sites. And some modern departments have very early origins. So, for instance, um, Customs and Excise, that's a modern government department, records at Kew. Uh, but they actually start in 1554. And I'm afraid not only did searchers get confused, but they were sometimes given the wrong information by staff and sent to the wrong place. In 1990, we had a scrutiny under the Prime Minister's Efficiency Unit and became an executive agency as a result of that in 1992. And that meant that there was more financial self-government for the office and in general more... Sort of self-control, self self-government um, than there had been before. Generally, much sort of, sort of separated from the Lord Chancellor's department um, to some extent. With an organisational administration, perhaps more like a um, private sector. This is where corporate and business plans started at this point. And there was a lot of reorganisation of personnel into directorates for the first time. So you can see where our modern structure comes from. And that is the point at which the Keeper of Public Records also became the chief executive. Well, by the 90s, Q on its own um, was also too small to cope with the things it needed to cope with and repository storage in particular was was nearly full. So the other extension was built, opened in 1995, Q2. Most of the staff not directly serving the public moved into Q2, all the public facilities remaining as they still do in the first Q building. And In Q2, um, there was mobile racking in the repositories, which means you can use the the space available even more effectively than than just open plan. Um, At the same time, it was decided to close Chancery Lane and transfer all the records to Q, and that was completed late 1996. It was a monumental exercise, uh, as I said before, about 33 miles of records at Chancery Lane. It was moved with a minimal disruption to the service on both sites, within time scale and budget. And beyond extending slightly the normal stock taking, um, the office didn't close at all. So that was really quite an undertaking. Um, At the same time, the census records and other records of a genealogical nature, which were available on microfilm, remained at Chancery Lane until early 1997 when they moved to premises in Middleton Street in Islington and were then joined by birth, marriage and death certificates Sorry, registers, which had been previously in St Catherine's House in, in the Aldwych um, after that, that Easter. And those, that joint operation was known as Family Records Centre and lasted until 2008 when they, all, all the operations of the National Archives came together under the Q site here. <laughs> the Chancery Lane building, having sat empty and sad for some time, was eventually acquired by King's College London, refurbished as a library, which in, in 1998 and is known as the Morn Library. So, April 9, 1994, the Public Records Office Library, which had been exclusively for staff before, was opened up to readers. Uh, the opening hours were extended and from July 1997 opened on Saturdays for the, for the first time a new education visitor centre where the museum now is, so it was nice to establish a museum again, that was opened in 2000 and the education facilities were increased by involvement with the National Grid for Learning. A big exercise to put the paper lists and the guide online, now known as the catalogue, called PROCAT before that, and a series of online exhibitions was created, so it's very much the move, as we're doing now, to online. In addition, the office was a key player in the National Electronic Archival Cataloguing Project, known as Access to Archives, or A2A, and they began an extensive programme of digitisation of records, that was known first of all as PRO Online, now obviously everybody knows it as Documents Online, and starting to address the challenge of the born digital record as well. Well, on the 2nd of April 2003, it was decided that the Public Record Office should amalgamate with the Royal Commission on Historical Manuscripts, and at that point, the National Archives was formed. The annual reports, which start off as the annual reports of deputy keepers and keepers, have vast amounts of information on the subject. Uh, there is an official history in two volumes by um, John Campwell, who's known, who's known as Jack Campwell, who's still with us as a volunteer, um, and um, a very nice book was, um, to mark the closure of Chancery Lane by Aidan Laws, who's a previous member of staff, called Strongbox the Empire, and if you are more interested in this subject, i will recommend that you have got that because um, it's full of lots of lovely illustrations and anecdotes, some of which I've <laughs> oh, so, thank you. This event was recorded at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. War rights reserved.